Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We've been having this morning a spirited discussion with Stephen Roach. Uh, of Yale University, his wonderful book, The Next Asia. Francine, why don't you jump in here with Dr. Roach? I was, you know, I guess got so much FaceTime with him on television. Why don't you lead it off here this morning? Oh, thank you so much, Tom. Gentleman Tom, Stephen Roach. Yeah, once thank a you year. So much. Once a year. I'm going to take advantage of this. Stephen Roach, um, it, it was great to speak to you on TV a little bit earlier from Yale University, former uh, Morgan Stanley. Give me a sense of what you're seeing out there that the market is mispricing. So we're seeing a little bit of movement on yields, political concerns. We're seeing a little bit of dollar movements up higher. And yet we don't really have the economic plan of President Trump yet. Well, you're getting close, uh, Francine. I mean, the markets are ignoring uh, possibly mispricing or possibly brilliant in being able to anticipate uh, what these policies are going to look like. And uh, there's, there's a fair amount of uncertainty uh, that will <clears throat> be resolved in the, in the next few months over the direction of fiscal policy, which is very, very important uh, for the, uh, the market outlook, but for this whole um, complex of uh, geopolitical global trade and uh, political shifts uh, that are uh, – uh, at risk, I think, of, of uh, coming into f- uh, f- focus uh, in a way that leads to a very disturbing conclusion for uh, the global economy and the markets that ultimately will be shaped by the, the global economic backdrop. So, you know, markets are um, – it's a one-way bet right now in terms of uh, U.S. equities, um, the dollar, and implications for – uh, other major currencies around the world, uh, and uh, you know the, the the history of markets suggests that uh, one-way bets don't always end uh, in a particularly um, uh, easy fashion. Why are markets largely ignoring all the risks out there at the moment? It's um, you know it's it's a study in human behavior, a belief in um, uh, you know the message. Uh, as opposed to the reality. We've um, had a, a real political upheaval in the United States, followed by similar uh, disruptive political events uh, in the U.K. and potentially uh, in, in, in Europe. Uh, and uh, as those political upheavals sort of shatter our view, the, the markets want to say, well, wait a second, you know, the guy is – pro-growth and growth is good and you know we'll but we'll buy growth and uh you know it's yeah. a it's a knee-jerk uh, uh ultimately i think an overly simplistic assessment of the right. 
prospects that are out there. Is it a gilded age? And do you see any end of the gilded age? I go back to the backdrop. The president has that bright gold backdrop. I know he got that idea from you when you used to give press conferences yeah, in, right. in China. But um, the, the, the idea of a gilded age, gold backdrop or, or others, how do you get out of that? How did we get out of the first gilded age? I believe we did it with a war. Yeah, again, Tom, you know, these periods of excess don't always uh, end in a, yeah. in a rather comfortable way, uh, given, given <clears throat> the, the widening income inequalities, the polarization in society and uh, political systems. There's a lot of tension that is building right now. Uh, and <clears throat> you, you combine that with uh, a theme we talked about on television this morning, this um, America first emphasis on uh, protectionism, and uh, it, it it does um, unfor have some unfortunate antecedents in a, in a in a darker period in our history. The talk of the moment, and folks, well deserved. I can't say enough about Commentary Magazine, Nicholas Eberstadt, where he talks about the cultural fabric, Steve Roach, of America, even going into our new reduced uh, life expectancies ever, ever so slightly there. I don't want to overplay that. The opioid crisis that, that so much of America is facing. Is it a miserable century that we're in? Well, you know, uh, I, I've certainly been accused of, of, of being um, from time to time overly uh, negative in my assessment of the world, but even I am not going to uh, extrapolate uh, for an entire century. I think what the Everstadt piece um, uh, identifies are some real tensions in the social, uh, political, and economic fabric that must be addressed. Yeah, and Francine, I want to point out that Dr. Roach is pushed more than anybody breathing against hard landing in China. He loves to play the doom and gloom pessimist that he is, but he's been the arch China optimist all the way. Yeah, Stephen, I'm and I still you know, am, Tom. And you still are, but we're looking. So I have a Bloomberg story today, which is amongst our top reds for our, our Bloomberg terminal customers, and it's saying China may be about to embark on a very ambitious and very perilous campaign to convince investors that they shouldn't depend on a bailout when markets go south. How do they convince? investors that China is safe when it comes to their investments. Well, what type of investments are you, are you referring to? Like in, so, in the so this domestic is, investment? Right. So are this is global new rules investment? for asset management products, right, which may make it clear that they don't have government guarantees. Well, you know, there, there certainly are some moral hazard risks uh, in China, whether it's the Wealth management products, which is, have been very, very popular uh, in um, the last few years, um, and, and, or, or whether it's the, uh, the state-owned enterprises, uh, which continue to get um, enormous support uh, from uh, the government. And in, in both of those areas, I think um, uh, if the government is going to put a floor under the, uh, the asset values, it's also going to interfere with the efficient allocation of capital, which China needs to go to the next step of its development journey. So I wouldn't say, uh, you know, this is particularly good news for a rebalanced, more of a market-driven Chinese economy going forward, if in fact this is correct. 
Is it a zero-sum society? I want to come back and talk about the bigger immigration picture and some trade theory here. But, you know, going back to Ricardo, we all read it cover to cover. It was always a difficult read, I thought, to read the original Ricardo. But from the original Ricardo to where we are now, is it a zero-sum society? Is this just mercantilism that's going on? Well, you know, the the big globalization debate uh, talks about massive poverty reduction over the last uh, 50 years. And um, that is, there's nothing zero sum about that. That's a positive sum development. And, and, you know, as poverty has been reduced and as education levels in once impoverished countries are increasing and worker skills are growing, then there's a lot of competition to do the things that we used to do and uh, yeah. used to do alone. And, you know, that coupled with a secular decline uh, in our manufacturing sector, has created this uh, drumbeat for viewing the world in a tougher zero-sum way, yeah. and that's unfortunate. David Gura, uh, Francine Lacroix, uh, very kindly has come in uh, for our American four-day work week. Um, Stephen Roach uh, with us. Stephen, it is the President's Day, I believe. The paper says February 22nd. Do you know the number of younger people, Stephen Roach, that don't know February 12th is Lincoln's birthday? And today is the first president's birthday. It's just yeah, become no, a three-day weekend. We used to get both those days off yes. when we were in school, the 12th yes. and the 22nd. Yeah. Not Martin anymore. Van Buren did that. That was when you were in fifth or sixth grade. Uh, was. No, I voted for him. I, I'm sure you did. But uh, wait, Tom, I, I just need to correct one answer please. that I gave. The, the question Francine asked me on the wealth management issue in China, mm-hmm. I misheard her question. It looks on the basis of the story that the government is going to uh, really introduce more of a two-way risk perception right. into these markets. That's a good thing, and I think I yeah. I missed it and said the opposite. Okay, okay. Well, that's a good. We call that a surveillance correction, which yeah. we do. I do too often. Francine's never made a mistake uh, in her uh, years here. That she admits to. Um, yeah, that would be true. Um, <laughs> Sounds I just, like our president. I just got a note from Michael in Austin, and he says, "Dr. Roach, please discuss the border tax. It's tossed around like." You know, a tequila, whatever, at one of Michael and Austin's parties and soirees. What does a border tax do to this nation and do to the fabric of our trade? It's it's another, you know, in this <clears throat> long stream of protectionist moves, Michael, in Austin. It, it, it um, taxes imports uh, and uh, subsidizes uh, exports. So it's a uh, functional equivalent of, um, uh, of of raising the price of goods that we purchase from overseas under the guise of well, everybody does it. Well, people d- not everybody does it uh, in in the fashion that's being contemplated by the tax reform measures of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, and so when you you couple this with the the other um, uh, initiatives that are, are being talked about, whether it's currency manipulation charges, uh, outright tariffs on uh, major trading partners, backing away from TPP, uh, renegotiating NAFTA, uh, building a wall, the America first uh, mantra of a protectionist Trump administration. Uh, it's, it's part and parcel of the same uh, story, an inward-looking isolationist uh, America that uh, uh, is f- not facing up to the consequences of what this means for the prices of goods purchased 
uh, in um, uh, Walmarts, either uh, in stores or online or uh, in, in, in broader platforms. So this is a, a real reversal of the forces that have been shaping and driving America's role in the global economy uh, over the last you know, 35, 40 years. Stephen, is there one initiative from the new administration that you would applaud or that, or that you would use? Well, in, in, they haven't really rolled out, Francine, any uh, uh, initiatives yet that we can speak to. There's, there's been a lot of feelers and, and um, uh, ideas uh, that they've talked about. And so when, when the president gives his State of the Union message next week, to the Congress, we'll have a little bit more clarity uh, in terms of concrete proposals that he's um, uh, looking for. Can they do anything? Is there anything good that could come out of the tax reform? Well, you know, I, personally, I think that the, um, uh, the debate that we're having right now on tax reform in the United States, putting uh, the relief of um, corporate America ahead of the uh, uh, the cue here is is misplaced. Uh, corporate profit tax, corporate profits uh, are are high. Uh, corporate profit taxes are low if you look at them uh, historically. Uh, there's an image that um, is being painted of a, a, a U.S. Uh, business sector that's lost its competitive edge. That we just you know have dropped the ball, and that's why we need. Uh, protection. Yet, if you look at the <clears throat> results of the World Economic Forum's competitiveness sweepstakes, we're at number three. We're behind Switzerland and Singapore, but you know, big deal. And we've been at number three for a decade. We well, we don't score well on taxes, but we score well on innovation in our market structures. And uh, you know, we're as competitive today as we have been uh, in in a long time. We don't need special uh, protectionist measures. Uh, to um, uh, enhance our role in the global economy. Stephen Roach, thank you for the time today. Uh, Dr. Roach is at Yale uh, University. And this is a great pleasure. He has single-handedly taken credit for the victory of the Chicago uh, Cubs. Joining us, he is Chicago, Sam Zell. Where were you when the Chicago Cubs? Were you at the park the night they won? No, I don't. Uh, I, I thank you for the for the compliment. I don't take any uh, role in that. I owned the Cubs for a while. Yeah, for a cup of coffee, you owned yeah, them. Yeah, and but uh, it's just great for the city and yeah. terrific, terrific for uh, the Cubs. This is an historic day, and like there's always good days to talk to Sam Zell, and you and I should talk about commercial real estate. We should talk about internal rates of return. Maybe we'll get to that. I'm looking at the cover of the New York Times or the cover of Chicago Tribune. Your parents showed up in Chicago from Poland two years before you were born, right? Uh, four months. Four months before you were born. Yeah. You you grew up in an um, all-American immigrant household That's with correct. great academic achievement and et cetera. Through your filter, how do you observe Trump immigration policy? Well, I'm uh, a big fan of immigration. Uh, I believe that immigration 
is a self-selective process. So, in effect, the people who have the guts to leave where they are and start anew are entrepreneurial, stronger, and have been the core of what have built this country. Can you affect policy, as the president suggests, to throw the bums out and keep the grain producer from Poland that prospered in Chicago, and I believe your sister was a valedictorian as well. How do you keep the Zells and throw the bums out at the same time? I think my parents came to this country legally. They followed all the procedures, and they did what it took to get a visa. Uh, I think the importance of America in the past and in the future is all about the rule of law. And consequently, uh, I think we can't, yeah. we can't have a two-system yeah. where half the people uh, apply and, and become uh, green card or whatever, and others just mm -hmm. uh, do it so illegally. That's the challenge, yeah. and it's a serious conundrum. Uh, Mr. Zell, let me bring in my colleague in London, Francine Lacroix, with us this morning. Francine? Hi, Samzel. I see it here with Brexit. I hear it here with Marine Le Pen in France. Why is it easy and why is it acceptable now to bash the foreigner? I don't uh, think that this is a bashing of a foreigner as far as the United States is concerned. I think the challenge in the United States is what do we do to, quote, make our, our country a rule of law? and have everybody abide by the same rules. I think that's the issue in the United States. I don't think it is foreigner versus anti-foreigner. But what do the economics tell us? So I'm looking at some research saying that actually some of the moves, the crackdown on undocumented immigrants, first of all, will strain a very tight U.S. job market, but also would cost the economy some $5 trillion over 10 years. I'm not familiar with the statistics that you're referring to, but I would suggest to you that I could come up with other statistics that would show other objectives. I think when it's all said and done, the question is, mm. what is or isn't legal? And, you know, what precedent do we set? Right. Uh, in the past, <clears throat> we've had administrations that have ignored the issue. Uh, that's why we have as many illegal immigrants in this country right. as we have. I, I could go for hours with you, but I've got to ask about commercial real estate. You, your first property was in Toledo, right? Um, after Ann Arbor, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a few, a few years ago. Can you do commercial real estate in the financial distortion of our low-rate environment? Or is commercial real estate heading for another crisis because money's free? Um, I think the answer is yes, you can be in the real commercial real estate business in this environment. Uh, I think low interest rates uh, might uh, mm -hmm. encourage people to do things they shouldn't do. I think the issue in commercial real estate today is not rates, but availability. And we are growing our commercial real estate size in this country very significantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, I think in 2016, we uh, started 378,000 right. multifamily units. 
I believe if it's not the largest single year in history, right. it's close. Yeah, we're seeing that in New York City yeah. uh, right now. Sam Zell, i got to ask one final question. The bloodshed in your Chicago is a national tragedy. Everybody's focused on it. Take me away from the political rhetoric. What do the people of Chicago want as a solution to the gang violence in Chicago? I think the uh, the whole issue is extremely overstated. Uh, yes, there is very serious gang violence. It's very serious uh, killing of people. But the impact on the rest of Chicago, other mm-hmm. than this, you know, very narrow area, is relatively limited. So I think it's much more a mm-hmm. story of the press than it is. Uh, you know, some kind of a degradation of the city. The city mm-hmm. is operating beautifully, and uh, frankly, it's uh, one you know, of the best places in the country to live. It's an honor to speak to you, Sam Zell, in this day of an immigration debate across all of America. Mr. Zell is from Chicago. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Francine, I see negative yields and I see a little bit of migration negative in Switzerland as well. And the linkage to euro. What would it mean for a parity euro, Francine? Well, it would mean that uh, people believe that the Fed is ready to hike rates pretty soon, and they believe that something ugly will rear its head here in Europe. So what would it take? Political risk? Um, yeah. People, I guess, getting you know freaked out about the Eurozone possibly breaking apart or uh, the election right. of Marine Le Pen or something happening in Greece. Yeah, I like the way you put that. And, this, folks, it's not just about the Euro, but it's always pairs in dollar strength off of February 1 is 2.1% up on DXY, excuse me, yes, on DXY, the blended currency. So we're not out to the dollar strength at the end of the year, but we're getting there uh, quickly. Stuart Werther uh, with us with BMP uh, uh, Paribas in equities and derivatives right now. All of a sudden, negative rates again. Is this negative rate conversation different than the negative rate conversation of a year ago? You know, Tom, thanks for having me on. I think it really is, especially because now we're in an environment where uh, potentially, you know, over the last few years, it's been a policy divergence environment uh, where we have really the Fed being the only bank heading towards normalization. But now we're in a situation where, um, yes, there's, you know, excess risk premium uh, embedded in a lot of these euro assets because of, you know, the French election, other things uh, kind of on the horizon, the German election, the Dutch election, et cetera. But, you know, as we go to the end of this year, we're going to see that the Bank of Japan is, uh, you know, potentially raising its uh, 10-year target. The uh, ECB is potentially tapering uh, towards, and, you know, kind of picking up that conversation in September and December. And we're in a, we're in an environment where it's really a two-sided coin wh- rather than a one-sided coin for the last few years. I mean, I mean, within this is the whole jumble of oil and the equities, but the overwhelming observation is equities are a moonshot. I mean, that's your specific focus. When we talk about convexity or acceleration in a given curve, how accelerated is equity, the equity vector right now? Is it like you've never seen, or is it just another bull market? 
So I think one way that we gauge this is kind of, on a, we, you know, when we get to these levels that are so elevated, we go back all the way to the basics and think, okay, let's look at earnings expectations and let's look at multiples, uh, and then compare that to where, where we are on a spot level right now. And what surprises me is that the dividend futures, which um, are a great way to kind of gauge the market's risk-adjusted expectation of earnings over the next few years, uh, these have actually outperformed equity spot market. So if you look at the 2018 dividend futures contract, it's pricing in 8.3% uh, compounded annual growth rate. So if we apply that, to 2018 earnings, we get to somewhere around $140 a share. And if we apply a 17 half multiple to uh, the equity market, we get to something like $2450. Now that gives us about 3.5% upside. So I think we're getting to fully priced, but if you kind of put all these things together, if you have a constructive view on tax reform, then the equity market still makes sense at this point. Right, so wh- wh- how do you model the trade war, right? And what I can't understand is the market doesn't seem correlated anymore. You have a two-year yield in Germany at a record level in negative territory. And then on the flip side, you have these record highs for U.S. equities. It, it makes little sense if you look at risk appetite. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that um, – Ahead of Brexit, for instance, all risk assets around the world um, were, or, sorry, excess risk premium was kind of priced into all assets around the world. And that's what's happening right now. So that's what's happening. You see it in the V2X curve in Euro stocks, which is essentially the Euro stocks equivalent of the VIX futures curve. You also see it in German two year yields. But you don't see it in US equities because potentially the, the spillover from a French election fallout or, or something like that is not necessarily apparent on how that would happen in the US at least. So I think this is a really good way to think about it, at least as far as kind of pricing this excess premium. V2X March, April, May calendar spread. So if you look at the two times the April contract, one times the March contract, and one times the May contract, is pricing at 13 points. Ahead of Brexit, that was only pricing at eight points. So what does that signal? So the market is extremely concerned about a fallout from a French election, but only in European assets. That's not being priced into the, the U.S. curve. That's not being priced into really anything else outside of Europe. All right. But how do you measure, if you look at earnings, and let's not talk about tariffs, but let's just talk about a dollar strength. Let's talk about people being unnervy and America first, actually, meaning France first and UK first. That should automatically impact your models when looking at earnings. No, exactly. So, you know, I, I think the rule of thumb that we operate with is an increase in the trade weighted dollar of 1% yields roughly an earnings response on the negative side of just under 50 basis points. So um, that was a key concern. However, what I think is different now than versus maybe a few months ago when the Trump trade really started to gain steam is that real rates have actually gone down from their peak. They're down about 40 basis right. points from their peak. And that's keeping the dollar subdued. And this is this is brilliant. And the heart of the matter is, is the rate of change of the inflation dynamic versus the nominal dynamic. Are we going to get a set of outcomes, as you've just described, of reduced real wages? Because wage growth doesn't go up as fast as inflation goes up. I mean, nobody can control or time inflation. Maybe maybe Chair Yellen can, but nobody else. But I'm, this is a joke, folks. But the, the basic idea here, as you've just observed, is in the inflation-adjusted space, you get some really bad outcomes. Exactly. And this is what actually is surprising me in the fact that the energy sector is underperformed year-to-date. Discretionary consumer stocks have actually outperformed. And if you look forward a year from now, what really is kind of the risk scenario is that headline inflation goes higher, core inflation you know, moves slightly higher, and then real wages are actually compressed. Exactly. What will it mean for oil? BNP Paribas has done a lot of work on this. 
Yeah, so actually right now what's interesting is that the market is, if you look at kind of positioning in oil, it's extremely long. Uh, so yeah. like net managed money is extremely long. And on that basis, um, you know, I think there was an interesting statement today as far as uh, from Total CEO regarding the need for OPEC to continue their supply cuts. Um, and so on that basis, it's it's a situation where oil could trade sideways to even slightly positive, but this could be actually be massively positive for oil producers, uh, especially given that they have this positive convexity when oil right. prices are above their break-evens. You got to take the Francine. This is critical. Stuart yeah. Werther, BMP Paribas. You have to take the Kool-Aid. You're supposed to say, in the Total interview today, led by your John Micklethwaite. Then that's how you do it. Okay, Francine. <laughs> All right. Thank you for the correction. There you yes. go. Shameless plug from our yeah. very own Tom Keen. Yeah. Stuart, when you look at oil, how much does OPEC actually have to cut for it to make a difference, given what we've seen with shale oil? Well, you know, I think that's the key question so far. It's been a net positive, but, you know, part of the issue is, especially when you're looking at, uh, you know, non-OPEC cuts like Russia, for instance, there is a massive seasonal decline uh, that generally happens in January, and I think that partially helped in the overall compliance um, as far as cuts so far. But on a going forward basis, uh, we have seen a massive response, a supply response, which is likely to continue both in the Permian Basin and in uh, Gulf oil production. So, you know, I think if we look at like the last IEA estimate, uh, expected production in the U.S. was supposed to be up about 120,000 barrels a day in 2017 and r roughly 300,000 barrels a day in 2018. Um, but I, I think the risk is to the upside in this scenario. And in that scenario, uh, we could have right. multiple years of range-bound oh, prices. This is brilliant. We're going to come back. Stuart Werther, folks, I really hope you like this if it's a little bit technical what he was talking about there but sometimes i let him uh, go he's so damn smart that global wall street loves it and maybe it's the idea that we failed and it got a little bit too technical but nevertheless interesting on the equity markets there doesn't seem to a belief does sentiment matter to a guy like you and what is the sentiment right now um, you know, it, it really does, because in an environment like this, it seems like the market, you know, when the market breaks out and starts trending, there is a degree of serial correlation in the market, and all of a sudden, um, you know, trend following becomes more important than potentially macro fundamentals. However, um, I do think that a number of things, such as sent positive sentiment about fundamental factors, such as both, you know, um, Upticks in PMIs, better um, GDP, better, better GDP, revenue growth, etc. That, that folds into it. When you dovetail equity research into this, does that good feeling actually fall down to a better free cash flow? Um, it does in the sense that corporations do more capex, right? Um, one of the things that was suppressed during 2015 and 2016 was uh, equipment investment and structures investment, and that was one of the reasons why um, you know GDP um, was not stronger than it was, even though we had some very strong uh, personal consumption measures uh, in that very strong uh, what was it the Q3 export spread. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, we saw that. You know, investment overall was very weak. Now, if that picks up because of better sentiment, because of better intentions to um, to do capex, then I think that has a, po a positive implication on the bottom line and a positive implication for S and P earnings. So, um, right. on that basis, it is it is something that matters. Maybe not as much as hard data, but it is a great forward-looking indicator. But Stuart, what would be the catalyst of this? We can go back to animal spirits. You spend capex when you feel very comfortable about the future. Exactly, and I, I think you know. In the U.S., at least, um, that is somewhat being constrained by the fact that we don't have a good outlook on what infrastructure spending plans might be in place or what kind of tax environment we'll be in. But 
you know, the expectation is that both of those environments will be better than they were, right? And if that's the case, then there still is potentially um, some positive ramifications um, before we get a final uh, view on what these items might look like. And when do you expect these animal spirits and so th this capex to actually start? When are we going to see it in the numbers? Does it take six months from now or a year? So, you know, uh, as far as corporate tax reform, that's something that I think the market is beginning to price in as far as happening in 2017, but effective in 2018. And as far as infrastructure spending, I think this is actually one of the key areas that potentially could have a disappointing effect on markets as it may not be larger uh, or have as much take up as expected. Uh, but our economists are actually really pricing that in in 20, uh, 2018 rather than 2017. So it's still kind of a year ahead. And, and that's what I think we see as well, you know, as mentioned before, in dividend futures, where the pickup in growth, the compounded annual growth rate for 2018 is higher than it is in 17, which is higher than it was in 2016. So 2018 is going to be the climactic year as far as um, both corporate right. tax reform and infrastructure spending potentially meeting together. Within your mathiness, can you pick a correction? Can you pick a bear market? That is the, the million-dollar question. And I think, um, you know, our, the corrections that we've had over the past few you know, few years have been very event-driven and related to a single asset class or a single driver. Uh, for instance, you know, in 2014, it was the high-yield market um, crashing. Um, in 2016, it was the fact that we had uh, dollar strength, yeah. EM weakness, same thing in 2015 as well, for that matter. And then we had a couple events, like Brexit. But as you see, the kind of the half-life of the events continues to shrink and shrink and shrink until all of a sudden we get to the election and it's well, just an overnight move. To John Micklethwaite's interview with a Total CEO, or for you know our buyer interview today, that was uh, hilarious, folks. The, the new CEO from Buyer suggested he hadn't taken a phone call from Mr. Buffett, uh, which I thought was was was. Outrageous. Really outrageous, outrageous <laughs> that I brought that up. I was so rude. But Stuart, uh, what a shock. Stuart, uh, to me, the corporate guys are almost review, re removed from the politics news flow. Do you buy that idea or will it finally come back to haunt them? You know, um, I think here's here's a little anecdote. I was actually listening to an advertisement uh, while listening to surveillance the other morning. I was listening to an you advertisement. Need to get a life. <laughs> I hope it was Cone Resnick. It was, I, I think, actually. And there was an advertisement about uh, you know talk to us and we'll we'll help you guide you through the tax reform. And I think for actually, I love it an impact on the real world outside of a Wall Street analyst research report. And I thought from that perspective, it is something that you know if we're spending if I'm spending this much time talk, thinking about it and putting together custom baskets and trade ideas around tax reform then I'm sure right. the CEOs are thinking about it as well. And so you would suggest that people go to Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory uh, so their business can break through. Cone Resnick can help guide Stuart Werther and BMP Paribas forward. Find, right? Am I doing okay? <laughs> I, I think that was the gist of the... Uh... That was called a shameless plug in this world. Stuart Werther, thank you so much with BMP Paribas. And, of course, I might point out that Mr. Werther is not advocating that BMP Paribas or others attend Cone Resnick. We'll do that for you. We thank Cone Resnick for their support. And we thank Stuart Werther for smart, smart conversation on oil and on the equity markets. Uh, Vincent Reinhardt uh, joining us right now with Standish as we dive into the economics. And we've not done enough in the Fed. We need to 
circle back to that. Uh, Vince, wonderful to speak to you. The, the immediate surveillance debate is a well-known vice chairman telling me that we're fully employed and a large number of economists pushing back and saying, no, we're not. Why does the Fed look at conventional statistics that discuss and observe fully employed America versus the reality that so many Americans see? Uh, They're conventional statistics for a reason. They help explain the time series relationship between resource slack and inflation. And so in some sense, the Fed is looking under the lamppost to find its keys. Uh, It works. Uh, It is true that, you know, Chair Yellen has said on many occasions there's no single measure to uh, summarize labor labor markets. But at the end of the day, uh, something beats nothing, and uh, the conventional measure of unemployment helps explain inflation in the U.S. But the idea of two Americas, I mean, it's not the unimodal, single-mode state that you worked in in school. There's two stark Americas out there, isn't there? Uh, no question about it. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, increased inequality. We have a marked decline in labor share of income, uh, and that it, there are dislocations associated, particular with the, the form of our technological progress. And in some sense, I think the big story is when the pie is not growing very quickly, people argue more about how it's sliced up. And potential output is growing slowly on the order of one and a half percent. Both Chair Yellen and Vice Chair Fisher, you know, uh, uh, you know, noted that it, it's it's fundamental to the uh, political discourse. Vincent, talk to me about how the Fed would look at these Donald Trump deportation threats. After all, I don't know whether they would, whether the crackdown would put a strain on an already tight U.S. job market. So I think there's a couple issues there. The one is, what does it mean for the macroeconomy? And the second is, what does it mean for your assessment of risks? For the macroeconomy, why is potential output growing slowly? We have an aging population that isn't increasing that much, and we're not adding much to output per hour. Uh, if you are deporting people, you're actually making the labor force grow even more slowly. And so that's not a recipe for growing the economy faster. So that's the macro part of the story. That, however, in the scheme of things, is small uh, because we're we're a big place and uh, even if we uh, deport people at the rate of the Obama administration, it's going to only change the needle pretty slowly uh, from the cold-blooded macro calculation. Uh, the more uh, immediate concern is about risks. What does it do to um, the investors' attitude toward risk-taking? What does it do to foreign investors' attitude toward the, toward the U.S.? And remember, you know, over the last couple of years, the FOMC on several occasions heighted, uh, highlighted heightened geopolitical risk or heightened uh, uh, financial strains as a reason not to, to deliver policy renormalization. So I think it's at the risk part that is, is, is more considerable. Right. And Vincent, what does dollar strength or does the dollar strengthen from here and what does that mean for Fed policy? 
So dollar strength is the good news. It's a mechanism in a market economy in which you get to share some of your strength with your trading partners. The reality is, you know, data have been running on the strong side. Uh, look at the, the Bloomberg Surprise Index. Economic uh, data have been running stronger than mark, uh, yeah. economists' expectations. Uh, we're growing stronger. We're sharing some of it with our trading partners because stronger growth is going to yeah. be associated with a, a tighter Fed policy than you might have thought yeah. a couple months ago. Why should you listen to Vincent Reinhardt? He drove research for Chairman Greenspan and did it grinding out research item after research item at the Fed. Tell me about, just Vince, just quickly here, Mr. Orphanides did a series of papers, I believe it was under your watch, about the toolbox and the toolkit that any given central bank has. How, how did those papers come about, and is the toolbox still extant? Uh, well, luckily, Athanasios got to use him because he was voting on ECB monetary policy yeah. when the governor of the Bank of Cyprus. Uh, and it was a lot of staff working on it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we saw the Bank of Japan's brush with the zero lower bound in the in the first part exactly. of uh, the, uh, the, the century uh, after basically a decade and a half of bad macroeconomic performance. And that gave a, yeah. a spur to research. Uh, also remember that there was a new governor around that time, uh, namely Ben Bernanke. Uh, who had a uh, abiding interest uh, in the topic uh, because yeah. of his experience in economic history, which turned out to be a good training. I'm going to put this chart out, folks, on Twitter. I'll use it on TV tomorrow and in Facebook Live if we do it today on remorse. And that is that Bank of Japan got the call wrong on inflation. Okay, Vince, I knew you were going to go there, and it sets up beautifully the debate right now of March versus September. Goldman Sachs and Jan Hatzius are talking about shifting the probability over to March. Morgan Stanley and Ellen Zetner flat out don't agree, and they're looking for a delay. Don't I don't care about the guesstimate of you on the parlor game, but set up the distinction between a March action in waiting, waiting, waiting till September or even later. Okay, if you tighten in March, then you've got three more press conferences in which you can tighten some more. If your ambition is to slow the committee up, then you probably want to delay the first action. Uh, it's as simple as that. It's the passage of time. Uh, the FOMC has indicated they'd like to tighten about three times in 2017. I don't put a lot of weight in that because they also told us they had wanted to tighten four times in 2016. Uh, and in fact, in the event, uh, they tightened only once. So uh, the, the key issue is if you are Chair Yellen, if you are FOMC Vice Chair Dudley, and probably would prefer a more gradual pace of rate renormalization, then you slow up the committee when you can. And March might be an opportunity to slow them up because the more you backload the tightenings, the more they may never come. Vince, do you worry about inflation in the U.S.? And if you do worry about inflation, would it not make more sense to start tightening earlier rather than later? Well, if you were worried about inflation, it might have made sense to tighten in 2015 or 16. Uh, the fact is you can't look at the January print on the Consumer Price Index and not be concerned. 
Uh, we've got core CPI and headline CPI above the FOMC's uh, preferred a goal of 2%. Yes, I know it's not their preferred measure, but it, it predicts what their, where their preferred measure will be headed. And so there is an issue. Uh, how uh, And by most estimates, we've, we've exhausted all resource slack. Uh, but the bottom line is oh, the dollar's appreciating some. Uh, the effects on resource slack on inflation is pre- are, are pretty gradual and seem to be attenuated over the last decade or so. So they probably think they have some time. I do think inflation is going to overshoot. That's why we're telling our investors that break-evens are, 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 are still attra- an attractive investment. Uh, and um, But it's a risk, yeah. and it's part of the reason why you have a lot of FOMC participants trying to tug their chairman along to, to tighten more. Right. What is the one, what's priced in the dollar right now? Are any trade wars priced in? Uh, a tough question because you have, you know, you, how much of it is already there and how much of it is more to come. You can't look at the Mexican peso and not think that that there is, uh, you know, concerns about trade uh, embedded in that price. More generally, don't think so. Um, I think. The key issue here is how much of President Trump's interventions in trade are going to be on a case-by-case, week-by-week dealings with individual firms, and how much of it is going to be an across-the-board tariff or border adjustment tax. If it's the former, if it's case-by-case, then the equity markets mediate that. The the price of the target varies. If, however, it's tariffs, then the exchange rate's got to change. Once you start changing the exchange rate, you're affecting balance sheets as well as trade flows. Vince, let me ask one final question for my good colleague, Michael McKee. The idea of how politics and the regime change of Chair Yellen out, Vice Chairman Fisher out, whatever, later in the year and into early 2018, does that fold into rate timing and just the daily posturing of good people at the Fed? I don't think it influences Chair Yellen or Vice Chair Fisher's uh, decisions in the least. I think that it uh, it will matter when people actually show up at the on in in board seats because they'll be voting and they'll be influencing uh, the FOMC president. So yeah. it's going to matter over time. Uh, but I, they're not doing any strategic uh, rate setting based on their knowledge that they won't be there in a year. Vincent, thank you so much. Vince Reiner with Stanish Mellon this morning uh, out of Boston uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.